This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Atlanta Journal-Constitution political reporter Greg Bluestein discusses his book, Flipped, How Georgia Turned Purple and Broke the Monopoly on Republican Power. He looks at the events that led to Georgia turning purple in the 2020 presidential election and talks about its significance in future state and national elections. Georgia is the biggest test of Donald Trump's clout in the entire nation. And it's not just because of the sheer number of candidates he's endorsed here, which is seven. It's because of the it's because of the nature of the candidates he's endorsed. Right. Um, he's endorsed. These aren't shoe ins, right? He didn't just endorse a bunch of uh, incumbents who are likely to win. He endorsed a, a significant number of challengers who are going up against strong incumbents. He's interviewed by Washington Post national political reporter Eugene Scott. Greg, it's so good to have you here with us uh, to talk about Flip, this book about such an important moment in our political history in the state of Georgia. I've I've been a fan for a while and obviously have followed you quite a bit on social media. And so it's it's an honor to be able to ask you these questions that we can't fit into tweets. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Greg, can you tell people uh, not familiar with you uh, who you are and and what you do and, and how you got to this position? Yeah, um, Greg Bluestein. I'm here, a Metro Atlanta native. I grew up just north of the city. I've wanted to be a journalist since fourth grade <laughs> and um, really jumped into it starting in high school, but was the editor of the school newspaper at the University of Georgia, where I first started covering Governor Brian Kemp. He was a uh, state Senate candidate running against an incumbent Democrat back then when Democrats ruled the state, and he flipped the seat. So maybe that was the first flip I've covered was way back in 2002 when Brian Kemp won an Athens-based state Senate seat. And since then, I've covered the rise of Sonny Perdue as the first Republican governor since Reconstruction and uh, documented uh, Nathan Deal's two terms as governor of Georgia and then really got into the, uh, the transformation of Georgia, starting with John Ossoff's run in 2017 when he proved that that the suburbs of Atlanta were very competitive and almost flipped a U.S. House seat just north of Atlanta, where I live, actually, and covered the 2018 gubernatorial race between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams relentlessly. And of course, 2020, which was the uh, the most epic election cycle that I've ever covered, for sure, in my two decades of covering Georgia politics, um, culminating in the Senate runoff sweeps of John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock beating the Republican incumbents. Well, you've got quite a few more elections to go, including one this year. So that 2020 election could be trumped, uh, you know, to use a popular overused term right now. And so I I wanted to get back to your history of political journalism. When you were a student, did you know that this was the path uh, that you wanted to be in? You know, as a a young student, as an elementary school student, I wanted nothing more than to cover the Atlanta Braves. Uh, I, I grew up in the worst to first era of the Braves when they went from last place to first place in the early 90s and then became a dominant powerhouse. And I was obsessed. And the Atlanta Journal-Constitution beat reporter, I.J. Rosenberg, came and spoke to my fourth grade class. So I I became obsessed with covering the Braves. And my mom told me, well, to do that, that means you have to learn how to type. And at the time, that seemed way too daunting. So I said, I'll do something easier. I'll cover, I want to be a, a, a doctor. And so for a while there, I, I had this dream of becoming a doctor, even though I had twos and I had bad grades in all my science classes and my AP exams. And it was uh, in high school where I recaptured the bug to go cover politics. Mm. And at the University of Georgia, as the editor of the school paper and working for the school paper, I got very involved in covering campus movements, political groups, 
um, and the rise of, of, at the time, the rise of Republican politicians in Georgia politics, because again, Democrats run, ran everything at the time. Well, for better or worse, as you know, uh, politics can sometimes very much feel like sports. And you're seeing some figures from the sports world uh, enter politics that you probably uh, wouldn't have predict uh, while you were uh, in Athens. People like Herschel Walker. Is, has that race right there been a surprise for you at all? Yeah, that's a great segue because it has. I mean, Herschel Walker, someone like me who grew up in Atlanta, who grew up in Georgia, um, you know, I wasn't born when he led the UGA to its first national championship in decades, but I grew up hearing stories about him. That, that's why he has such high name recognition. Um, even folks like me who never got to see him play at UGA um, grew up hearing stories about his athletic feats and all that. So um, that helps put him in the position he's in right now. He has both Donald Trump's endorsement and Mitch McConnell's endorsement. He's at 60, 70, 80 percent in the polls that we've seen. Um, a, a commanding lead over his Republican primary rivals. Closer, of course, in the general election of the, the test polls we've seen. But um, he's in a solid position to win the nomination. And it's partly because he probably doesn't need Mitch McConnell's endorsement or Donald Trump's endorsement. He could probably be in the same general area without the, their support because of that high name recognition. But he's still a blank slate in some ways as a candidate. We still don't know where he stands on a number of issues. Um, we still we still at the Atlanta Journal Constitution haven't had a sit down interview with him. Mm. Many other mainstream media outlets have yet to be able to talk to him because he's reserved his his uh, interviews mostly with friendly audiences. So uh, there's a lot that remains to be seen and certainly how he navigates a troubled past that includes allegations of domestic spousal abuse, erratic behavior and uh, questions about his business background still loom very large in that race. I want to get uh, to 2020 and your book, but I want to stay on this 2022 uh, race for a while. How much of Herschel Walker's selection by the GOP do you believe is a response to how the Republicans did in 2020 in the Senate race? Um, a lot of it is the response of getting, want, wanting to have a new uh, face, an outsider, right? Um, Georgia Republicans and really Republicans throughout the country, but I think particularly in Georgia, are obsessed with the idea of an outsider. David Perdue, who's now a candidate for governor, he ran for U.S. Senate in 2014 with the outsider label. It was front and center. It was about everything he talked about was he was the outsider politician. And, you know, there's no outsider quite like Herschel Walker. He hasn't lived in the state in, in for years. He lived in Texas and mm -hmm. just moved back to run for office. And he certainly wasn't involved in uh, conventional politics. He was a big Trump surrogate, but he wasn't involved in day-to-day -day politics in Georgia. Um, so he's running as an outsider. He's also running with the Trump brand, right? As I said, it might not matter. He might have been in this position even without Trump's um, endorsement, but certainly he's looked at as part of this pro-Trump slate that is coming to Georgia and uh, a part of the former president's image, his, his attempt to remake the Republican Party of Georgia um, in, his, in his own mind, in his own image. Um, he, he wants to oust a lot of incumbents um, who either align with Governor Kemp or he feels like aligned against him in the 2020 election, even though there was pretty much lockstep report, support right. for the former president among the GOP here. Um, but a lot of this, this 2022 election is already hinging, on the Republican side at least, around uh, a fascination with 2020 and uh, these false claims of election fraud in Georgia. You mentioned uh, Republicans in Georgia's obsession with uh, an outsider, and then you went on to say, or at least an outsider label. 
And, and quite frankly, you talk about that in, a, in your book a bit when it comes to Purdue. And I think that also applies to Walker. These are people who aren't actually outsiders. They're very familiar uh, to Republicans in the state who've been paying attention for a while. Is, is that fair? Yeah, they're first-time candidates. And right. They've Purdue's case back in 14 and Herschel Walker's case now. But um, they, are, they are name brand figures, right? Herschel Walker has almost universal recognition, right. name recognition among among voters here in Georgia, because in part because of his athletic feats, um, and David Perdue, you know, even though he himself was not very well known when he ran for for U.S. Senate in 2014, he comes from one of the most famous political families in Georgia. Sonny Perdue, his first cousin, was the first Republican governor in Georgia since Reconstruction. So he had Sonny Perdue's network and his political operation um, at his side as he ran for this campaign. Um, but look, even Brian Kemp. He ran as an outsider for governor against the lieutenant governor, uh, Casey Cagle, at the time in the Republican side. But Brian Kemp, even though he called himself an out- outsider, his office was directly ac- across the Capitol Rotunda from Casey Cagle's. He was secretary of state. So you, you see that in politics everywhere. But especially in Georgia, you see people who are literally elected statewide officials who still say they're outsiders to the political game, even though um, they've been in state office for years. What's the value of that? Who does that appeal to? I mean, certainly people know that these are individuals who are not literally outsiders, but when they define themselves as outsiders, who are they help, hoping, hoping to reach? The conservative base in, in, in states like Georgia, hmm. right? It's, it's, you, you hear it over and over again when you're out there on campaign stops and just talking to voters. They want someone who can shake up Atlanta. They want someone who can shake up Washington. Um, they don't want the status quo. There is this sense that there's corruption or there's malaise or there's gridlock and they want someone who can help fight for them. And it has been the sort of the calling card for Republican officials, especially in Georgia, to say that they're the outsider, to say that they can be that candidate who can maybe channel a little bit of Donald Trump, that same sentiment that we saw Republican voters flock to with Donald Trump. Um, they're trying to harness that same power. And it's been real hard for the insiderish candidates, right? Hmm. Casey Cagle, um, the lieutenant governor at the time who, who was defeated by Brian Kemp, um, he had a real challenge with that because he had been a three-term lieutenant governor. He, he was a fixture of the state capitol. That was who he was. And uh, to see those forces kind of be turned against him, the same things that got him you know, to become the front runner on the Republican side in 2018 was turned against him just a few years later. And would that appeal to the conservative base uh, be because of dissatisfaction with the base, with the status quo and the GOP? Yeah, it's a feeling that um, folks are being left behind. They're being forgotten, um, that they're not being their values are not being embraced. Um, It's it is a lot like Donald Trump's line in 2016. that He's he's fighting for the forgotten man. Um, And there's a lot of voters, especially in rural Georgia, who feel like they're aggrieved, who feel like they're being forgotten, they're left behind, even though uh, the people in power oftentimes are rural white Georgians just like them. You mentioned the desire to turn out the base. You know, that's something that both the Democrats and Republicans focus on quite a bit, understandably. But it seems sometimes as if Democrats are a little more concerned about winning people from outside of their base, maybe independents and even Republicans. Do you see that at all uh, with the Republican Party? Because it seems like these candidates may not be able to be as successful in turning out people who aren't true believers. Is that fair? 
Yeah, Republicans in Georgia believe that they can keep that coalition together, if they can keep um, the same coalition that has powered them the office for years in Georgia for the last two decades, um, then they can win. If they can just turn out their base, they can win. The change we've seen is on the Democratic side. Right. Um, for, for a long time in, in Georgia, uh, especially in the early 2010s and late 2000s, um, we saw Democrats really try to win back suburban voters mm-hmm. who had gone to the GOP. Um, uh, you know, uh, moderate middle of the road voters who felt alienated by national democratic policies. And that's why we had democratic statewide candidates who embraced issues like um, expanding gun rights, you know, who didn't, who didn't really wade into culture wars either for or against who stayed away from Barack Obama and other national democratic figures when they came to town. Um, We saw that change with Stacey Abrams. Mm -hmm. When Stacey Abrams ran for governor in 2018, she not only did she uh, support gun restrictions, but she boasted of her F rating with the NRA mm. when just four years earlier, a gubernatorial statewide candidate, Democratic candidate, you know, called himself an NRA Democrat. Mm. Um, so you saw this sort of sea change of Democrats playing to their base really for the first time aggressively rather than going towards the middle. But that's not what happened necessarily with the Democratic Party at the national level. And, and even now, I mean, the desire for... Uh, the White House to appeal to people beyond the base is something that uh, makes Biden the object of quite a bit of criticism uh, we, we see often from those in the base. It, have you seen that in Georgia as well? Yeah, there's a feeling among Democrats this cycle, right, that, that, that in 2020, it would be really hard to recreate what happened, the magic that happened in 2020, where you had um, a, a huge surge in turnout voters, uh, sorry, in suburban voters, a huge turnout surge among suburban voters, and the base showing up, especially in urban parts of, of, of Georgia. Um, to recreate that won't be easy, especially without Donald Trump on the ballot, right. especially without the extraordinary circumstances we had during the pandemic with a surge in mail-in voting. And that's why Stacey Abrams, as she's running for governor right now, um, she's already kind of locked down the image among, among liberals of being this progressive icon. And right now, her campaign is revolving on, it can be kind of summed up in two words, expand Medicaid. That's an issue that she feels like has a broader base of support and one that she ties back to kind of every question she gets, whether it be about infrastructure, about economic development, about the plight of rural Georgia, whatever it is, she finds a way to tie that back to expanding Medicaid. You mentioned the magic of 2020, the coronavirus pandemic, Trump being on the ballot. Also, these social justice movements, which you talk about in your book, is really making people think differently about a lot of issues that they perhaps hadn't reflected on quite a bit. But you also mentioned in your book that uh, what happened with the Democrats in Georgia, the success they experienced, uh, didn't come out of anywhere. There was strategizing and organizing and just work involved in that had been on the, in the making for years. Can, can you explain some of that to people? Yeah, it's important for especially a national audience to know this was not some sort of uh, overnight success, right. a miracle that just, you know, just happened to happen. Right. It took years of work um, from Stacey Abrams, but also from organizers on the grassroots level who had this plan 10 years ago to start building the party back up and to engaging with voters who felt disconnected, disengaged, um, alienated from the process on issues that mattered to them rather than trying to run as Republican lights, rather than trying to stick to the middle on every issue, Democrats started embracing their core authentic values, whether that be gun control, whether that be criminal justice reforms that included decriminalizing marijuana, 
um, whether that meant different taxing policies uh, that involved uh, more income tax credits for uh, middle class and, 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 and uh, lower income families. Um, all those played into this, this entire broader pitch uh, that also included expanding Medicaid, uh, which was an issue in 14 and 18 and now in 2022 in Georgia. So all these kind of played together with Democrats saying, hey, you know, we can still win the middle, but we don't have to necessarily alienate the left by aiming at the middle the entire time. And so they started pushing for, for Democratic leaning, you know, core voters, particularly those younger voters and voters of color who didn't vote often in midterm elections and even skipped a lot of presidential elections. But that's not the approach Republicans took in terms of expanding their coalition. I think you talked about that a bit earlier. Can you explain to people who may not know what the coalition for the GOP looks like in Georgia and how it may look similar or different from the national GOP coalition? Yeah, as, as the Democratic coalition of 20 years ago um, tat, was in tatters, it was basically rural white Democrats who were kind of yellow dog Democrats. They had been Democrats forever. And urban, mostly minority black Democrats, voters of color um, in, in cities like Atlanta and Savannah and Columbus. Um, as that tattered, uh, Republicans picked up those rural voters mm-hmm. um, to the point now where rural counties that went 80% Donald Trump went 90% Brian Kemp just two years later. Um, so Republicans are, are basically, they're trying to wring out every vote they can in rural parts of Georgia, um, knowing that, hey, look, you know, th- th- there's no guarantee. These are places where population is dwindling. Right. They're going to struggle in the long term to keep on relying on these rural counties. But in the short term, they feel like it's enough to keep, you know, to keep them in power. Um, and that's going to be a, a strategy of Governor Kemp or David Perdue, whoever ends up the Republican nominee. That'll be a part of their strategy in November as well. Meanwhile, the suburbs of Atlanta have gone not just not just have they flipped, they've gone decisively Democratic. Um, Cobb County, Gwinnett County, these are very populous counties northeast and, and northwest and northeast of, of Atlanta, um, where you know more than a million people live combined. Those are counties that used to be Republican fortresses. And as they've grown more diverse, as they've gotten more um, out-of-state uh, uh, residents who have moved there. And um, and as the state has become more politically competitive, those states have flipped solidly blue. Um, Gwinnett County, particularly so, is pushing 60 percent Democratic support um, right now. And those have become the cornerstones of Democratic success, while at the same time, the growing exurbs just north of those counties have become much more important to the Republican base right now. The Republican formula uh, is keeping those counties not just red, but solidly red. And so that's how we've seen the Republican strategy sort of um, evolve. But no, the Republicans aren't necessarily aiming their messages or focusing their messages in the middle of the electorate. Um, they are trying to wring out as much support as they can for the base. And we're seeing that right now as Georgia's legislative session continues with a number of basically culture wars issues that are meant to energize Republican voters. Yeah, so it's been a uh, study in identity politics in every way possible when you look at the changing demographics of Georgia and the cities and the rural communities over the past decade and how that affects state and national politics, it seems. You're right. And there used to be the saying in Georgia, there's two Georgias, there's urban and rural. And now there's four Georgias, in a sense. There's urban, rural, suburban, and exurban. And each have very different voter compositions, very different electorates, very different issues. Um, And that's the challenge for any statewide candidate, is finding 
the sort of package of messaging that appeals to all those various electorate because um, very different priorities. Agriculture is still by far the number one industry in Georgia. And, um, and, and voters who, who are in that industry have distinct concerns from voters, let's say up in the metro Atlanta suburbs or voters in just a little further out um, who rarely come into Atlanta, um, but live in the exurbs and like it that way. What are some of the lessons learned uh, that you've witnessed from the Republican Party since 2020 uh, that can influence how things turn out this fall? Well, in one sense, um, they can learn from Democrats in terms of engaging voters who rarely vote. Um, it, it became a trove of support for Stacey Abrams, for Raphael Warnock, for John Ossoff, for Joe Biden in the last two election cycles um, to, to capture those votes and energize those voters who skipped midterm elections, who felt like they weren't part of the process, who didn't find a candidate who can message to them effectively. Um, that takes years of work. Um, and Republicans are have done it, right? I mean, it's not something that they were not caught sleeping at the wheel in 2020 in Georgia. Um, they knew this blue wave was on its way and they were trying to build what they called the big red wall to fight back, to fight it back. And in 2020, it wasn't, the big red wall was not tall enough to, uh, to keep the wave from crashing over them. But they feel like they're already starting to do the work to energize their base in different ways and to reach out to those voters um, that, that, that skipped 2018 and might have stayed home in 2020. Their biggest issue, though, still com- continues to be Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, the former president has endorsed seven candidates now in Georgia, including can- challengers to Governor Kemp, including uh, candidate Herschel Walker for U.S. Senate, and including a lot of challengers for down-ticket races that most Georgians really, frankly, aren't paying that much right. attention to right now. Um, and this Trump-fueled dynamic continues to, to impact the race. Trump even had a rally just a few days ago in uh, the exurbs of, of Northeast Georgia, where he talked about voters staying home in November if Brian Kemp was the party's nominee. And so that will continue to hamper Republicans in Georgia and potentially help Democrats um, who can just kind of point across the party aisle and say, hey, they're still fighting, we're united. Why do you think Republicans were so aware or anxious about a blue wave coming uh, in 2020? The, the GOP has been incredibly successful for more than a decade in the state when it comes to some of the biggest races. You're right. I mean, they control, up until 2020, they controlled every statewide office. Um, They control a majority of the Georgia legislature. Um, They control a majority of the congressional delegation. And so in one one sense, you know, there's a good question. Why why worry? You know, (laughs) they're they're winning every election. But the other sense, you look at just the track. In 2014, Nathan Deal won by eight points. Um, to, to be reelected as, as, as governor. In 2016, Donald Trump wins by five points, t- captures the state by five points. In 2018, um, Brian Kemp wins by, wins by a point and a half, right? So the track starts getting more narrow, but also Republicans were very well aware of those efforts from Democrats who believe that, hey, demographics is important, but it's not necessarily destiny. We need to find those messages. We need to find those ways to energize voters. And so Republicans were looking. David Perdue said as much. You know, he's a he's a corporate executive, so he's always interested in what the competition is doing. So he paid very close attention, as did other senior Republicans, to what Stacey Abrams and her allies were doing um, to energize their voters, to mobilize, connect, register, all those things you need to do to to get a groundswell of new support. They were paying attention to that and wondering how they could do it as well. 
How divided is the state uh, Republican Party when it comes to Trump? We, we know that the former president has endorsed a handful of candidates and walked away from some that he seemed to be, um, you know, in, in, in good terms on good terms with back in 2020 or even before. Uh, are you seeing the party uh, not be completely sure where they want to go in terms of the future of the GOP? You know, I think Georgia is the biggest test of Donald Trump's clout in the entire nation. And it's not just because of the sheer number of candidates he's endorsed here, which is seven. It's because of the it's because of the nature of the candidates he's endorsed. Right. Um, he's endorsed. These aren't shoe ins. Right. He didn't just endorse a bunch of uh, incumbents who are likely to win. He endorsed a, a significant number of challengers who are going up against strong incumbents with high name recognition and who have been in these races for years. And in some cases, um, incumbents who have kind of done nothing to alienate Donald Trump other than being supported by Governor Kemp. Um, so Georgia is that test case. And we'll see if we'll see a May 24th during our primaries. Um, if Republican mainstream voters come out in force behind Governor Kemp, or if you see this sort of groundswell of pro-Donald Trump support come and, 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 a, and crash a wave over Republican incumbents who aren't backed by him. Um, but certainly those issues continue to divide Republicans. And I know this story has been written a number of times, and it's also included in my book, but the very fact that Republicans now, there's a faction of Republicans in Georgia that say we need to focus on 2022, on inflation, on the global supply chain issues, on health care, on different issues that are priorities among Georgia voters. And there's a faction of Republicans that says, hey, yeah, we'll look at that too, but 2020 is our main bag right now. That, that going back to 2020 and all this, all these conspiracy theories and falsehoods about election fraud in Georgia, which are all bunked, right? They're, they're, um, multiple election officials have said there's no indication of any fraud. We've had three tallies of votes. We've had audits. Um, even Trump's own attorney general said there was a free and fair election. Um, but there's this obsession with 2020. And I saw it firsthand at Donald Trump's rally just a few days ago when issues that used to be applause lines about crime, about corruption, they still got maybe tepid applause. But when Donald Trump or any of the speakers talked about 2020, there was a roar from the crowd. So it showed that at least among Trump supporters at that rally, um, there is still a significant motivation factor to, from talking about 2020 rather than 2022. But when you think of these voters uh, and these even elected officials who seem to be you know, consumed uh, with 2020, what's the end result that they are hoping for? And, and if they don't get that, which is unlikely, uh, it's likely, should I say, that they won't get whatever their end result uh, is that they're desiring. Will they let go of this focus of t on 2020 and 2022? Or is this just going to be the new uh, priority for these voters? Look, I was shocked in mid-November of 2020 when we were still talking about um, contesting the election and, and, and the Republican Trump supporters were, were, were fixated on that, right? I, didn't, I had no idea it would still drag on to 2022, but that's what's happened. Um, there are rallies around the state still where people wear Trump won shirts and have Trump won signs. I interviewed voters who were convinced at this rally that Donald Trump would be president, you know, now, not in 2024, but that somehow he'd be reinstated. Hmm. Um, it, and, and you see statewide candidates for attorney general, for secretary of state, some of the top offices in Georgia who said that their first steps would be to launch investigations into what happened in 2020 and to, quote, hold folks accountable. Right. 
um, which has a number of meanings. But when David Perdue said something along those lines, a lock him up chance erupted right behind him. Mm-hmm. And that was in reference to um, Brian Kemp. Right. So again, it becomes this, it has still become this energizing fuel, rocket fuel in a sense, to the Donald Trump supporters in Georgia and, and I'm sure beyond um, who still think that there was some sort of fault, uh, fraud, uh, rampant corruption, fraud, rigged election, all those conspiracy theories that Donald Trump has been talking about has firmly rooted itself in at least a faction of the Georgia Republican Party. As someone who's been paying attention to Brian Kemp uh, for quite some time, what's it been like uh, covering his decreasing popularity with some people uh, in the GOP uh, for you? Has that come as a surprise or did you see that uh, coming before this moment? It's been head spinning Mm -hmm. Uh, because remember, Governor Kemp owes in part owes his election victory in 2018 to Donald Trump. Hmm. Six days before the runoff Republican vote, Donald Trump sends out a tweet saying essentially that Governor Kemp would be the, that Brian Kemp would be the best Republican on the ticket, and he gave him his full-throated endorsement. That changed the game for Brian Kemp. He was in, a, he was in, the, he was in the lead in the polls, but he was in a very tight race okay. against Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle at the time. Um, and he went from close, likely win, but close, to a runaway route. Mm. I mean, he won every one of Georgia's 159 counties, but two. Wow. Um, so that just shows you, he even won Casey Cagle's home county. That just shows you what the Trump endorsement meant in 2018. Um, you could see their ties were starting to strain a little bit uh, during the pandemic and particularly, and I go into this in great detail in the book, but when Governor Kemp picked Kelly Leffler hmm. for an open U.S. Senate seat, um, against or not with the full-throated approval of the president at the time. Um, so that was when the strains really started, but they accelerated during the election process and afterwards where Trump wanted Brian Kemp to call a special session. It could have resulted in lawmakers trying to overturn the election results. He did not want Brian Kemp to, uh, to verify, to kind of sign off on the results of the election, to certify those results, even though Governor Kemp was bound by law to do so. Mm-hmm. And then there was other Trump supporters who felt like Brian Kemp should be on the airwaves talking up the, these conspiracy theories. Well, Brian Kemp used to be Secretary of State, so he knows election laws better than you know most people uh, around the nation and in Georgia because he was he was you know had his had a hands-on approach to all these election issues, and he wasn't ready to go there for Donald Trump, um, and that that peeved Donald Trump to the point where you saw this escalating outrage that ended in not only Donald Trump calling for Brian Kemp to resign but also saying early last year that he would hold rallies. He'd be back in Georgia to rally against Brian Kemp. And that is exactly what he's done. Based on your conversations with insiders, people who uh, have known Kemp for a while, what's it been like for him uh, to see someone have such a major role in their success and, and perhaps their failure if things continue to go the way the former president wants? At first, it was, uh, um, according to folks around him, it was frustrating. It was maddening. Mm. You know, they felt like um, he had done everything, that Brian Kemp had done everything possible to uh, support the president's agenda and to support his time in office. Now it's kind of baked in. Mm. Now it's, you know, now whatever Donald Trump says at his rallies, um, anything he could do, he's already said it all before. He's already... He's already gone so far as to even say in September that he'd rather see Stacey Abrams mm. as governor than Brian Kemp. So there's in, in the Republican world, there's not much worse you can do than say you'd, you'd rather see 
you know, sort of the arch nemesis of Georgia Republicans be the governor than Brian Kemp. Um, so in that sense, you still won't see Brian Kemp. You will not hear Brian Kemp say a bad word publicly about, about Donald Trump. Uh, when he's asked about the endorsement and about you know, his, his opponent's Trump-backed campaign, he'll, he'll focus on David Perdue or he'll focus on his own agenda and he'll just say, hey, I can't control what other people are doing. I can only control what I'm doing. And that's become his sort of standard line. Again, you're not going to hear him bash the president, the former president. You won't hear him try to engage in a, in a fight with him because he's not going to win that fight. Right. You know, he's not going to, he doesn't have more Twitter followers. Well, he, he does now, but he doesn't have more email followers or all this. He doesn't have the same megaphone that the former president has or, or the same appeal nationally. Um, but what he does have that he's running on is a record that he thinks the conservative voters will end up supporting. Speaking of Stacey Abrams winning instead of uh, Brian Kemp, if, if that were a possibility, uh, what is the Democratic Party saying as a whole uh, in terms of Abrams? Is, is she the individual that they fully support or is there a wing that believes that maybe the Democrats could have been more successful in the last governor's race if they had someone who was not as associated, be it perception or fact, with the most progressive parts of the party? That's a great question, because in 2018, there was sort of a never Abrams wing of the party that thought that she would be an ineffective governor, <clears throat> that she's the wrong candidate um, to run statewide. But you saw that pretty much effectively stamped out um, very fairly quickly. Um, she beat a formidable Democratic opponent in 2018 who had the more conventional approach um, to running for office. She was uh, her, her opponent, Stacey Evans. Um, ran uh, the, the same sort of campaign that many other statewide Democrats ran, which was trying to appeal to the middle, you know, keeping the left energized, but trying to keep, appeal to the middle more than anything. Um, and she was trounced in a primary um, a competition. And that was seen as a mandate for the Stacey Abrams approach. And when Stacey Abrams came within a point and a half of beating um, Brian Kemp, 55,000 or so votes in 2018, and then parlayed that to even more national, a higher national profile, right? Even Governor Kent marveled how Stacey Abrams in her, in her defeat seemed to become an even bigger national figure than Brian Kemp became in victory. Uh, and certainly she did in some sense, right? She was on national talk shows. Um, she, she wrote a, a string of, of best-selling books. She went on national tours um, that sold out. I mean, I was with her in not that long ago in San Antonio, Texas, in a ballroom that was packed to the gills. And I was looking around, I was like, this is the Stacey Abrams I knew a decade ago that, you know, was, was fairly anonymous. And now she's selling out crowds and in, in, in all over the nation. Um, so she's become this sort of superstar nationally that, uh, that of course, Democrats, sorry, that Republicans will use against her to say that she's more interested in, in using the governor's office as a stepping stone uh, to the presidency than she is in Georgia. But right now you're seeing sort of a united Democratic Party behind her. She has no primary opposition. Um, very few Democrats who are elected officials, if any, are willing to speak out against her or say anything negatively about her because they're all on the same page right now. And they're all kind of eating popcorn, watching Republican infighting across the aisle. It definitely seemed like one of those cases where losing was the real winning for her in terms of everything that came from her defeat after the election. It really did. I mean, not long after election, Chuck Schumer, the Senate um, at the time, the Senate Minority Leader was was urging her uh, to to run for U.S. Senate. Um, gave her a chance to give the official rebuttal to Donald Trump's State of the Union speech, 
Um, she was a fixture on national TV shows and national podcasts. And the group she founded right after her election defeat, Fair Fight Action, it raised $100 million in just over a year. So she became the sort of fundraising juggernaut as she expanded her national profile and her political organization, which set her up all to do what she's doing right now, which we in Georgia always figured. I, I never really thought she was going to run for U.S. Senate. And as a lot of, uh, there was a lot of talk about whether or not she'd run for governor again. I was convinced the moment, <laughs> for better or for worse, the moment she uh, ended her campaign against Brian Kemp, I was convinced we were headed towards a rematch in four years. And here we are. It's kind of interesting that Kemp would suggest that uh, Abrams is more focused on a national platform uh, and higher office than uh, leading Georgia, uh, because many people haven't made it clear that that is exactly what she wants. People who know her well and her plans, when others have suggested that it's actually Kemp who, had he won, would have maybe wanted to do something more outside of Georgia. Is, Is that fair or accurate? You know, it's interesting because Stacey Abrams has never um, been shy about talking about her ambitions. She feels like um, she shouldn't be shy. She wants to be an inspiration to other young women, especially women of color, um, to talk about what they want to do and not to be um, reserved about about higher ambitions. So as early as and this has become sort of a famous story in Stacey Abrams world. But as early as she was as she was 18 years old when she charted out her career trajectory, on a spreadsheet that included, at the time at least, Atlanta mayor. Uh, she, she kind of abandoned that idea uh, and replaced it with being governor. And then her ultimate goal was to be president. And she's talked openly that, that yeah, she has White House ambitions. Um, when she was, uh, you know, when Joe Biden was recruiting a running mate, right. she made it very clear. You know, she wasn't going to be shy and, and ho-hum about it. She was actively uh, engaged in trying to be his running mate. Mm-hmm. It didn't work out for her that way. Um, and that meant she could com- completely focus her attention on being governor. Um, but that is why you've seen some of those attacks, because she's talked about, openly talked about, um, you know, federal ambitions, White House ambitions one day. Not running for U.S. Senate, but uh, being having a role in, in the White House, in the executive branch one day. Um, Brian Kemp, who knows? Hmm. Um, you know, he's he I know he loves being in Athens, where he's from. I know he likes being in Georgia. I know a lot of those Republican politicians say they hate Washington. That's become like a standard, you know, boast line about how much they hate Washington. Um, but we've heard from a lot of Congress members how much they don't like Washington, yet still run every two years to get up there. Right. That's very true. Very, very true. Uh, one of the main uh, talking points from Democrats has been uh, that they perhaps did not win uh because there was something wrong with the system. Maybe there was some type of uh, advantage that Republicans had that was unfair or unethical. But are you seeing much conversation among the Democratic Party uh, about reflecting on what they actually did do wrong that led to their defeat? In in 2018, um, you know, there was concerns that the system, if not if not if not use of the word rigged, um, was set against them right. um, because you had a Republican. Uh, st- got, Brian Kemp was the Secretary of State, and that, when, that means he oversaw the election system in Georgia. And even as he was Republican Secretary of State, he was still running for governor. He didn't right. step down despite calls from Stacey Abrams and many of her allies um, that he should step down. So that was sort of the first strike against Governor Kemp, Brian Kemp, in that 2018 election the Democrats saw. Um, but there was a strict. Uh, use of there's a strict adherence to Georgia election laws. Um, 
And that meant that provisional ballots um, that had questions around them were, were thrown out. That meant that um, absentee ballots that didn't exactly match signatures um, could have been questioned. That meant that, you know, if you used a nickname on one document and your formal name on another, that your, bo- your vote could be kind of um, uh, questioned, right? Scrutinized heavily. Um, so that was maybe the top concern of Stacey Abrams during that entire run-up was that um, a pool of votes was being questioned. And she filed litigation um, during a, a 10-day, I always call it the purgatory period, mm-hmm. but the 10 days after the vote in November of 2018 and before she conceded or she, she ended her campaign, she never conceded, but she ended her campaign, she filed a number of litigation um, trying to get those ballots counted all over again. And um, it wasn't enough. You know, it, it probably wouldn't have changed the outcome of election, even if every single one of them was counted. Um, but there's a number of questions. And that's played in majorly in 2022. Because last year in Georgia, Republican-led legislature passed a rewrite of Georgia election laws um, that includes uh, new obstacles to vote for many, includes photo IDs for absentee ballots in Georgia, and includes stricter limits on um, absentee ballot deadlines and request uh, windows and includes more limits on ballot drop boxes and a number of other changes. And we're not sure exactly how that will affect the electorate. Um, could it affect hundreds? Could it affect thousands? Could it affect more? We won't really know until it's stress tested. And we haven't had a big stress, stress test of that election yet. We had municipal votes last year, but those were lower turnout. We're about to have millions of people head to the ballots in Georgia. And that will be the biggest test. And that will be a way for us to see how, how much that has changed the dynamic in Georgia. Well, assumptions from liberals in the state are that it will change uh, turnout uh, in terms of how the election goes uh, disadvantaging the left. Is that correct? There is a worry among Democrats that, yes, this will target um, voters of color disproportionately. It will affect poor voters who might not have photo IDs, um, who uh, might not be aware of these changes, you know, who are used to the way things were in 2020 and before. Um, and who got used to the idea of ballot drop boxes uh, being um, uh, in more abundance than they will be in 2022. There'll be a lot of voter confusion beyond that, just with redistricting. Um, a, lot of, a lot of voters have different congressional representatives and legislative representatives. They live in different districts now. Um, so that, that will be a major factor. Um, and again, look, it, the outcome will, will help shape this because if we're looking at a very close race like we had between... President Biden and Donald Trump in 2020, where the total vote was affected by about 11,000 and it was split by about 11,000 votes, then yeah, you know, even the most minor change, and I'm not saying, I'm not saying these changes are minor, but even, even minor changes could have affected that outcome. But if it is divided by 200,000 votes, 300,000 votes, then um, whoever's on the, the losing end, it'll be a lot harder for them to make that, that, that argument. Obviously, there's been a lot of attention to the gubernatorial race and even, uh, you know, the Senate races and Washington based races after the 2020 election. But based on these changes that we saw implemented last year from the Republican uh, legislature in Athens, have you seen the Democratic Party at all put increased emphasis on the need to vote in more local elections for their members? Yes, um, there is a there's this robust effort to recruit 
strong down party, down ticket candidates along party lines. Um, we have more Democratic candidates involved in elections, just in, in the elections in Georgia than we've seen in in decades. Um, a number of Democrats are running, even in unwinnable races, um, legislative districts where it's drawn to be not just safe Republican, but impossible for Democrats to win. You're seeing Democrats raise their hand and run, um, in part because they want to challenge and they think they're, you know, maybe there's a, they could pull off a miracle. But really, you know, the, from the party level, to engage voters, um, even in these unwinnable races, just to energize, you know, every vote counts. So if, if, if a local Democrat who has no chance of winning a legislative seat but can still get 50 extra people to the polls who wouldn't otherwise vote, uh, that can add up. Um, but look, we're seeing Republicans do that too. Republicans are waging um, congressional campaigns and legislative campaigns against uh, undefeatable Democrats in such safely blue districts as as you can imagine. Um, and really, you know, the interesting thing about redistricting in Georgia is the Republican majority could have could have been much more aggressive in a sense. They could have redrawn lines to pick up two con- two congressional seats rather than one in the U.S. House and multiple um, legislative seats. But instead, they decided to play it safer um, in order to retain their majorities through the rest of the decade. Because some of those seats, if they could have potentially flipped two seats in the U.S. House this election cycle. But both those seats could have been vulnerable in 2024, 2026. Instead, they drew one seat, very safely Republican, that's now Democratic controlled, and then another seat that's now Democratic controlled to be very safely Democratic. So they're kind of hedging their bets. What are the ideas uh, that you are seeing take center stage that they're are uh, hoping uh, will be more winsome this year that perhaps we're not, you know, primary and front and center back in 2018. On the Republican side, we're seeing a return to culture wars in Georgia that we really haven't seen um, in, in a long time. Mm. Um, you know, one of the first things that Governor Kemp did when he took office was sign a sweeping anti-abortion law. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was something that his predecessors tried to avoid. Um, and he's expected to soon sign a very broad-ranging gun rights expansion into law, um, both aimed at energizing Republican voters. But we're also seeing a return to sort of culture wars at the classroom. We're seeing legislation that seeks to uh, direct how teachers can talk about race and gender in the classrooms, what what Republican sponsors call divisive concepts. Um, we're seeing legislation that gives uh, school officials more power uh, to ban what they see as uh, offensive books, obscene books, um, uh, restrictions on transgender athletes from from competing in certain high school sports. Um, so we're seeing a broad range of those issues come up in the Georgia legislature that Governor Kemp will put front and center in his election campaign um, as a reason for, as a motivating factor for Republicans to vote. On the Democratic side, as I mentioned earlier, it's been if Stacey Abrams' campaign can be summed up, it's expand Medicaid. She's talking about other issues. She still has many of the same platform um, ideas that she had in 2018, but she's not talking about them to the same degree that she is expanding Medicaid. But on the federal level, we're also seeing something different. We're seeing Democrats acknowledge and brace for the fact that inflation and global supply chain problems and rising fuel prices are all going to be a major factor in how voters decide who they support in November. And so shortly after Senator Raphael Warnock qualified to run um, for another term, the first things out of his mouth were, I'm going to go back to Washington to help fight rising prices. So right now, his top priority is uh, 
a, a federal gas income tax break for, 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 for gas at the fuel pumps. It is capping insulin. It's the price of insulin at $35. It is uh, going after what he say, sees are price gougers on the global supply chain. So he's going after issues like that that are, you know, frankly, they're not divisive. They're not really partisan. They're more populist than anything. But Warnock is a candidate who his critics uh, are being very aggressive and somehow trying to, you know, associate with identity um, opposed to issues and, you know, symbolism far more so than some type of resource. Have you seen uh, that campaign push back on that in a way that could be effective with uh, voters that uh, maybe aren't quite sure how they feel about Warnock. Yeah, we saw that to a major degree in the 2020 campaign with um, a lot of the same attacks uh, wedged against Barack Obama during his Senate and presidential runs were were leveled against um, Raphael Warnock. Um, in the debate that he had with Kelly Leffler, no fewer than a dozen times did she call him a radical liberal. And you better believe that will be the Republican attack line um, this time around because it plays into uh, the fears of Republicans that, that the nation is, is slipping down a, a more leftward path. Um, and certainly, Rafael Warnock has a progressive track record, of course. Um, and, and if you looked at maybe his biggest issue last year, um, what he was most identified and associated with was federal voting rights expansion, the John Lewis Act um, that got uh, held up in, in legislative gridlock. Um, but this year... Of course, he hasn't abandoned his support for that at all. But this year, you're not seeing him uh, emphasize that issue nearly as much as he's emphasizing those other issues I talked about. Fighting rising inflation, um, federal gas tax break for fuel, uh, capping the price of insulin. All those things are what he is, the message that he is pounding every day. And it's meant to show that, hey, he can work across party lines and he can embrace some of these uh, more consensus-driven, nonpartisan issues. When you think about Warnock and Ossoff, were their victories surprising still after Biden's or after or or were they expected, I guess, after Biden's, uh, given how Democrats turned out? You know, the biggest challenge for for all four of those candidates was trying to get the they all calculated very early if they can get the exact same coalition that helped elect Biden or, or even voted for Trump. If they could get the same group of voters out, they'd win because Turnouts generally have lower, runoffs generally have lower turnout. Right. Um, but what it ended up being was basically kind of a, the whole thing seemed like just a crapshoot, right? Mm. Um, more than half a billion dollars was spent on TV ads. So it was hard for any individual ad to kind of stand out because there was such, if you turned on a computer, turned on your TV, um, dared look at a, a, you know, something on your smartphone, you were going to see an ad for one of these four candidates or for their allies um, even watching, you know, a Christmas special or a holiday movie. My kids were treated to all sorts of videos about Raphael Warnock being a radical liberal or, or Kelly Leffler being the worst human being or whatever it might be at the time. Um, you know, no one was spared in Georgia as much as you might have tried. <clears throat> so it became this, this all-out battle and where both, both parties and all four candidates kind of, again, retreated to their, their cores. Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff made the calculation very early. If they can just reach the base again, and if they can get every, you know, as many Joe Biden voters as possible to come back out for them, they'd win. And um, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue made the same calculation when it came to Donald Trump supporters. But their problem was Donald Trump kept on moving the goalposts. 
kept on insisting on even more uh, tests of loyalty. And that culminated in his call for both David Perdue and Kelly Leffler to object on January 6th to the Electoral College vote. And um, both of them ended up saying that they supported Donald Trump's attempt to block his, his opponent's Electoral College confirmation. It's been clear that Trump's uh, been very vocal uh, in these races in Georgia and will continue to be. Uh, do you see that happening with people from Washington like Biden or Harris or other popular lawmakers? You know, it'd be interesting to see um, how Raphael Warnock, how Stacey Abrams, how other Democrats treat Joe Biden, um, because certainly they welcomed his support in 2020 and 2021. He came to Georgia for several events. Um, he also was here for a voting rights event earlier this year um, that got a lot of attention. Stacey Abrams ended up bypassing the event because of a personal conflict. Um, but it was seen by some as her attempt to distance herself mm -hmm. from the president, whereas here in Georgia, that is not seen really as as anything that she can possibly do because, right. A, she tried to be his running mate, right? right. Um, she tied herself directly to him. And B, even if she tries to distance herself, Republicans have everything they already need to 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 attack her and, you know, put her on every flyer and TV ads alongside Joe Biden's face. So um, I don't think there's any real effort for Stacey Abrams at this point to distance herself from from Joe Biden. I think that Democrats will take the same approach Republicans have long had, which is we'll take all the help we can get. Um, and you saw John Ossoff even take that approach with Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. You know, Ossoff in 17, when he was running for Congress, he steered clear of national politicians every chance he could. And in 2020, he he said, you know what? Now I'm embracing their support. Now now he, fe he felt like now they could only help. What is it that you think people outside of the state of Georgia don't understand about the state's politics that your book will provide some clarity and insight on? Yeah, some major things. One is we talked about it earlier, but this was not some overnight success. This took years of work, years of different approach to messaging. And it wasn't because Republicans were sleeping at the wheel. They saw it coming too, and they did everything they could to stop it. Um, another major part is the suburbs. You know, people like to kind of view suburban areas as these lily white monolithic images of mostly white uh, enclaves. And in Georgia and in the rest of the nation, but particularly in Georgia, that's not the case at all. Um, Gwinnett County, just northeast of Atlanta, is one of the most diverse uh, demographic areas in the, not just in the state, but on the Eastern seaboard. Mm -hmm. And suburbs are changing fast and politicians are, are, are changing their messages with it. And I'd say another thing is just authenticity. You know, um, voters can smell when someone's being phony. It doesn't mean that voters will always punish people for, for holding views they, they might not necessarily think you, they believe in. Um, but Democrats embrace that authenticity. They, they, they um, stopped running as Republican lights, I guess is a good way to put it. And they were rewarded. It took years, but they were rewarded in 2020. Um, for that embrace of core values. And Republicans have been doing that in Georgia as well. You know, um, moderate is a bad word in the Republican world. And uh, you've seen Republicans sort of go back to their core values too. Another um, kind of point that we make uh, intensely in the book is too, is um, there was not this sort of lurch to the middle in 2018 or in 2020. We'll see what happens in 2022. But there was not this pivot to the middle um, really in either of those races because you know, both parties realized that they would get more bang for their buck if they tried to energize uh, disconnected voters, voters who stayed home or voters who weren't that, who were kind of apathetic in general about the political process. They felt like if they could maximize that turnout, 
it would be more economically and efficient, uh, efficiently worth it than going to the middle and trying to spend time and resources uh, to win the very few swing undecided voters that there are in Georgia these days. Awesome. Well, Greg, I greatly appreciate your taking time to talk with us about your book and politics uh, in the state of Georgia uh, in not only 2020 and 2018, but this year and, and perhaps in the future as well. Thank you so much for having me. This was a blast. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts. <laughs> 